Let's open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians today. And I would advise you to maybe keep a little marker in the book of Colossians as well. Because these two books are twins. They are parallel to one another. Not surprising. They were probably written within hours, within a day or so, of one another. The Apostle Paul knew uh, that he was going to send Onesimus back to Colossae uh, as a runaway slave become Christian. And he was going to write the letter of Philemon to encourage Philemon at Colossae to welcome Onesimus back as a brother in Christ. And so it only made sense that the apostle would also want to write a letter to the church at Colossae as well. So that's the book of Colossians. And apparently he decided it wouldn't be a bad idea to just write a generic letter that could start at the capital city of Ephesus and then kind of make its way around the seven churches of Asia uh, and any other churches uh, that are in that same vicinity and be read by all of those congregations that he is hoping to make a quick visit to once he finishes with his imperial review, which seems to be coming very soon. Remember when he wrote to Philemon, he said, hey, have some lodging ready for me because I believe your prayers will soon be answered and I'll be coming to your place. And so I'm guessing that what we're about to read is all happening right around the later spring, early summer of 63. Now, let me get back to this idea that the Ephesian letter may, in fact, be a circular letter. Uh, if you do a little bit of digging, maybe read a footnote or two in your Bible, you will discover that the name Ephesus is not in verse 1 of all the ancient manuscripts. It seems to be like a just a hole there, a gap. Uh, where a different name could be put in. And so that's why a lot of commentators, and I include myself among them, believe that it was intended to be a circular letter uh, that would go around all of Roman Asia province, but starting at the capital city of Ephesus, and that's how the name Ephesus got attached to it. You will notice as we go through it, it is less personal. It is much more generic there are not uh, lots of uh, names of people uh, that are mentioned in the letter. Uh, whereas Colossians, the parallel letter, has lots of personal names in it. Uh, we will also note uh, in the um, book of Colossians that there is an expectation that another letter is heading their direction. And I believe, along with other commentators, that that was probably the circular letter of that we know of as Ephesians. Okay, that's enough background. Uh, let's dive into the text itself. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul, 
an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So a little reminder here, he didn't just get this job because he wanted it. He got it because God wanted him to have it. To the saints who are at, and then in some of the manuscripts, there's a blank here. But in the majority of them, it is the name Ephesus, which is the capital city of Roman province Asia and the place where Paul had spent uh, several years ministering uh, during his third missionary journey. And that's been a few years ago now. To the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the double opening of grace and peace. Uh, Both of them, the common way that letters were opened by Greek writers and Jewish writers, uh, but also focused on what Jesus did. By his grace, his unmerited favor toward us, we are saved. By his peace, because he became the sacrifice. He repaired relationship between us and God the Father. So grace and peace, very important to us as Christians. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So we start with this introductory benediction, this blessing formula. Uh, that God is to be praised. God the Father is to be praised because through Jesus Christ, he has given us everything we need to be blessed in the heavenly realms, in this eternal place that we will be with God, the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, eventually. And then he goes into the theology of how, through Jesus Christ, we came into this situation. And some of the wording here, I think, will help you better grasp the idea of predestination. Okay? Verse number four. Just as he chose us in him, that is, in Jesus Christ, So this is a categorical selection. This is not an individual selection. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, there are other passages where we've seen this before, that God had already made up his mind how salvation was going to be carried up before he ever founded the physical world that we live in. Before creation really got started, God already knew it was going to have a problem with sin and it would need a Savior. And so God already had the details worked out way back when, in Jesus Christ. So just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. So that's God's goal. Uh, When he made us, he made us in his image and his likeness. That's how he wanted it to be. Sin came into the world, but he already had a remedy for that before sin ever came into the world. And that solution was Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world 
in God's mind, the solution was already set way back then. And the intention was that we would be redeemed by this, that we would be able to repent and come back into right relationship through grace and peace, and we would then live the way he wanted us to live in the first place, to be holy as he is holy, to be blameless as he is blameless. So that was God's goal. And the way that it was discharged was love. In love, this is what he was planning. Remember, this is agape. This is the commitment-type love. It is the love that looks out for the other person, regardless of the personal cost. And so God was motivated by his commitment to us from before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Now, the word predestined in its most literal understanding is to set boundaries ahead of time. And this is not that hard to picture because most of us have seen a building site where they put the little stakes out with the little red or yellow markers on the top. And when we go out there and look, we know that the building is going to be inside those boundaries because that's what those boundaries indicate. And so that's the predestination of that building. It is the boundary set ahead of time. So Jesus, slain before the foundation of the world, as far as God the Father was concerned, He became the boundary markers for salvation. And all of us who would get inside those boundaries were predestined to be saved. We chose to get inside Jesus. And God knew, foreknew, far ahead of time, who those people were. And so it is a categorical predestination. Uh, we are saved in Christ. Uh, so he predestined us to adoption as sons, so to become part of his family through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. That should remind you of the John 3.16 passage, that God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one-of-a-kind son, that whosoever would believe in him. See, that's the moving inside the boundaries part. Anyone that would come into Christ would not have to perish, but could have eternal life. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn the world. No, he sent his son into this world that through him they might be saved. So Jesus is the boundary markers of God set up in this world into which all of us that want to be saved need to go. And he wanted that, and he works toward that. But because of free will, not everyone will come inside those boundary markers of Jesus. We know that God's will is that all should repent and come 
to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God would want. But God does not force it. He allows all of us to make our mind up. Do we or do we not want to come into Jesus? And will we or will we not stay in Jesus? So that's all kind of bound up into these first few words of Ephesians chapter number 1. Uh, and all of this was done, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Uh, the beloved, of course, Jesus. And we get God's grace through Jesus, and he wants us to have that. He's poured it out on top of us. Then we have continued praise about Jesus. Verse 7, in him, that is, in Jesus, we have redemption. That redemption is the idea of paying what is necessary to get something back, to redeem it, to, to get it out of hock. In him we have redemption through his blood, that is his death, his atoning death, his substitutionary death, the forgiveness of our trespasses. See, that's what happens when we embrace the death of Jesus Christ. Our sins are forgiven. They've been paid in full according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So Jesus was rich in salvation, which he pours out on those that call upon his name, who come inside the boundary markers of Jesus' death and resurrection. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he proposed in him. Uh, mystery is top-secret information. And it's only understood by those who get read into the program, very similar to the military stuff. And so God reads us all in to the gospel, that he wants us to know that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he resurrected on the third day according to the scriptures. We're talking about the Jewish scriptures here. And that he was seen alive by many reliable witnesses. That would include the apostles who end up being the generators of the New Testament. And so that's, that's the mystery that you will only understand if you embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior and then you suddenly understand all of the plan. And it makes sense at that point that God wanted us saved in Christ. Verse 10, with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, things on earth. Uh, this should be related in your head to the Great Commission by Jesus. Uh, recorded in Matthew chapter 28. Uh, so Jesus meets with his apostles on a designated mountain in uh, Galilee. And uh, when they see him, some are a little bit 
doubting still, but others believe fully that he was Jesus, resurrected from the dead after having died for sins. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth in that context there in Matthew 28 is this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So because Jesus died and rose again, he is available as our Savior, but he is also designated by God the Father as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is master over all things. And so that is what Paul is nodding to here or or making a reference to here, that we in the church are living in a time period in which everything is hanging on Jesus. He is the head of the church, as we'll see in a little bit here. He's in charge. It's all about him. Continuing, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Uh, So we have an inheritance in Jesus Christ of eternal life. We have an inheritance in Jesus Christ of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Uh, We're predestined in the sense that all of this is inside the boundaries of Jesus, the preset boundaries. Come into Christ, be saved. Come into Christ, inherit a new heaven and a new earth. Uh, Come into Christ, and you will be in the presence of God the Father for eternity, because that's what God wants. And these guys that are in the first generation, they, they are the ones that pass it on to the next generation, who pass it on to the next generation, who pass it on the generation after that, until here we are, many generations later, we are also embracing this truth. We are also finding ourselves inside the boundaries of Jesus Christ and being saved like God wanted us to be saved and hoping to be uh, part of this eternal kingdom when Jesus Christ reveals himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we'll be praising his glory. We're already praising his glory. Verse 13, in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, that's the gospel, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, sealing in the first century culture was marking something as your personal property, marking something with your personal ID. Uh, A lot of people would have not a signet ring, but rather a little signet roller that they'd keep on a a little thread or a chain around their neck, and then they would uh, take it to roll across clay to set their personal mark onto that piece of of writing material uh, to make it clear that they have agreed to this. So the Holy Spirit has been given to everyone 
that's been saved by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that has marked us as God's personal property, that God marks us as his kids, the ones that will inherit salvation in his presence because of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 continues with that idea, who is given, that is the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. Uh, You know, when you get ready to buy something like a house or a car, you put down a down payment. It's a significant amount to show, I plan on making this mine. And so the indwelling Holy Spirit is a down payment on the future that God is going to have with us, the inheritance of a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the Holy Spirit marks us in that way. Um, In modern Greek wording here, uh, the pledge idea is an engagement ring. Engagement rings are typically or have been typically given as a promise, I will marry you. And we know that that imagery is something that Paul appeals to, that Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church, to the individuals that make up the church, to say, I will be back and make you my bride for eternity. So the Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So there's still more coming. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints. Now, if this is a generic letter, which is what we suspect, then he's talking about all of Asia, uh, the eastern, excuse me, the western end of modern-day Turkey, all of Asia province. He's been hearing good things about these people where he ministered for several years out of Ephesus and was probably the key uh, component in getting many of the seven churches of Asia started. So he says, For this reason, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among all of you, and your love for all the saints, you know, that's a marker of a Christian, is love for other Christians, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he gets back to the whole thing. I am so thankful for you guys, and I pray about you all the time. And here's what I pray. Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So Paul wants people who are Christians, to get wiser and more understanding of a relationship with God the Father through God the Son. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. little turn of a phrase. The heart is where uh, Jewish mindset thinks that decisions are made, and so eyes are what you use to evaluate Uh, what's out there to make decisions with. So he says, may you have everything you need to make the right choices so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, 
What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, the hope of the calling, um, as we've seen in quite a few of Paul's writings, the hope is Jesus is coming back, and he's going to take us to be where he is for eternity. So when we were called to faith, that's what we were putting our hope in. And the riches of glory, uh, that belongs to Jesus. Because, you see, he has inherited all of us. We're his wealth. You know, the coin of the realm of the kingdom of God is people. And so Jesus Christ is very wealthy in people that have been saved. And to know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Uh, So God has great power being exercised toward all of us who have faith in Christ. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So here's more about that gospel, that Jesus died, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended on high, and he seated at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf. Verse 21, he is far above rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So it is all about Jesus. Jesus is the Christ. He is the head of the church. He is the master of all who name the name. 